The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's Keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this week, we are coming to you live in New York City from the Columbia University Energy Symposium. <laughs> the theme of this conference is disruptive innovation. And this morning, at least for the first part of the show, we're going to focus mostly on disruption. Uh, we've been doing this podcast for three years now, and the past two months have brought the most frenzied and manic news cycle that we've ever faced. A lot of people are searching for answers in this very confusing time, and so we're going to do our best to give you as much context as possible about the, about the deluge of news affecting the energy and clean tech sectors. Hearing our desperate cries for help and sanity, three experts have emerged from the chaos and gathered on stage. Catherine Hamilton, you know, she is the partner with 38 North Solutions. She comes to us from the swamp of Washington, D.C. Have you drained the swamp yet? I grabbed my wallet and dressed like a woman and took the 452 train up. And the train was broken, so you literally just ran on the door before we took the stage. All right, well, Jigger Shaw is here on his home turf, as always, in his bubble vest. He's the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, how you doing? Doing great. Our guest this week is David Crane. We're pleased to have him on. We've been trying to get him on this show for a little while now, and, and we get to talk to him in front of a live crowd. Uh, you, him, you know him probably as the former CEO of NRG. He's a very outspoken guy about climate change and the clean energy transition. He's now a senior operating executive at the private equity firm Pegasus, and he still writes about energy at Green Biz. David, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me tell you what the four of us are going to be doing on stage this morning. We are going to start the conversation off with what else? Donald Trump. Uh, we're going to look at the turbulent first weeks of the Trump administration. We've had nominations, executive orders, blackouts, bans, proposed budget cuts, resignations, rogue Twitter accounts, and growing protests. We're just 14 days into this administration. What can we expect for the next 100 days? Then we turn the mic around on David Crane. In 2014, while CEO of NRG, he wrote a letter to shareholders saying the power provider needed to become the Google, Apple, or Amazon of the energy sector. It didn't take long for shareholders to sour on that vision. So what does that say about how hard it is to transition from brown to green? And what does that mean for other companies thinking about doing the same thing? Finally, how to get a job. We're going to go through many of the questions that people ask us when looking for a job in clean tech and try to pass on some advice worth listening to. And as usual, at the end of the show, we're going to tell you something you may not know. First, on to our obligatory Trump section. I'm not even quite sure where to start with this one. So I guess I'll just start on day one, minute one of the Trump presidency. 
As soon as he was sworn in, the White House website was changed to reflect Trump's policies. And guess what? All mentions of renewables and climate change were stripped out. Everything, gone. In its place was a simple page for an America-first energy policy. It promised to expand oil and gas and dismantle Obama's climate action plan. So we speculated a lot about what this energy plan was going to look like. And finally, minutes after he was inaugurated, we had a plan. Uh, it's the firmest evidence yet of what this administration plans to do. Catherine, I want to get your reaction to this immediate change. Um, wah, wah. <laughs> there you go. Transition section over. Uh, it's it's a. <laughs> Sorry. Let's go on to the second section. Um, a normal part of the transition is to change out the website, archive the old website. But this was different, right? They scrubbed any mention of climate change um, as it related to their energy plan. How different is this, do you think? And, and, and what does it say? Again, we speculated for a long time about what, a, what kind of plan might emerge, and now we actually have something in writing. Yeah, I mean, it seems really last week that they did that, and there's so much that's happened between then and now. But a lot of what the government websites do is provide really interesting, critical information on how the government works. And that's part of what is missing from the White House website, is you don't really have an idea of how everything works and how it fits together. Now, the other websites have not been scrubbed in the same way, so EPA and DOE aren't as weren't completely changed over. I assume they'll change they are as now. those administrators and secretaries are put in place and they start deciding what they want to highlight and the priorities that they want to have. Um, but I think it's a shame from the point of view of just information to the public because it's changed so drastically that people who went to find things in certain places just couldn't find them. Mm -hmm. Jigger, what did you think of the America First Energy Plan? Well, I think as most folks know... Um, I generally don't get too plussed about these sort of things. Right. Um, you know, I've but I will to, say, well, I, not to interrupt you that quickly, but I will say you've always talked about renewables needing to be um, as strong in the public eye as oil and gas. People need to see this as workers putting steel in the ground, not some sunflower blowing in the wind. And what the Trump administration put forward was a plan to develop the, the strong technologies that are going to make America stronger. And that's exactly counter to what you've been arguing. So it does oh, kind of matter. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, it, it certain, certainly matters in the sense that I guess we're going to be leading from behind or whatever they try to say about these things. Um, but I guess what, what I mean is that when I talk to investment bankers, when I talk to corporate CEOs in the renewable energy space, they haven't changed their 2017 targets. They haven't restated sort of, you know, earning expectations. They haven't um, reduced total capital allocations to the sector. And so from their perspective, they sort of still see, um, you know, this sector continuing to move along at breakneck speed at with growth targets in storage and in all these other places. And so so until that that, you know, sort of ideological bend to the White House starts to move sort of these plans and investment plans and other things, then it's just noise, like a lot of things that comes out of this president. Yeah. And I would just say you need to differentiate between messaging and policy. So the website is messaging. It's like the alternative facts about energy. And that's what's on there. And that's very different necessarily than what is going to be rolled out in policy. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the same thing. He kind of promised he would do more about coal 
that's what he's put out there. So I think that that's, that's something to keep in mind is there's a difference between the messaging that he's putting out and what's actually going to happen. David, do you think we're making too much of this, this change out um, in terms of what it actually means to the investment community and to long-term policy? Yes. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm with Jigger. I mean, I, I go back. Uh, if you teach a, you know, a, a child how to play defensive back in football, you teach them, ignore the head fakes, ignore the hands, ignore the feet, watch the belt. You can't fake with the waist. You know, that's where the receiver is going. And uh, uh, it's and my biggest concern, uh, you know, in the media is just, you know, you know, turning on CNN last night, 30 minutes dissecting, you know, uh, Donald Trump's little verbal, you know, joking with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is it serious? I mean, it's just it's going to exhaust our society. To, I mean, clearly we have a president that throws around words in an impolitic way. And, you know, maybe that gets us into trouble. Uh, you know, who would have thought that, you know, we'd be on the brink of World War III with Australia? But, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, um, but I don't think it matters in the energy sector at all. So, you know, words clearly don't matter uh, to this president. So I think the actions are important. And... Um, and the thing that I would be most – first of all, I don't think energy is a high priority uh, for, oh, for him. Uh, I've heard from people working on he, – he does care. He's a builder, and I used to think that that was a pos, possibly a positive and would be good for a certain part of the energy industry if he decided that he was really excited about high-voltage transmission lines. That could be good for the wind industry. Um, but my understanding from people working on his trillion-dollar infrastructure plan is that energy is about a tenth priority, that Donald Trump's interested in infrastructure that he personally experiences, so airports and uh, things like that. Uh, so Golf courses. Yeah, you know, key in infrastructure. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I, um, I think the one thing I'd be concerned, and um, I think there's been some effort to – give everyone uh, comfort, you know, circulating that, you know, the solar industry now employs four times more people than the coal industry. But uh, my response would be that, but Donald Trump went to West Virginia and told the coal miners that he was going to be their champion. So, uh, and if we have learned one thing in these two weeks is that he's hell-bent on, on fulfilling his campaign promises, no matter how illogical or irrational and no matter what the consequences you know, we're, so there's a little bit of concern there, but I can't figure out how he actually saves the coal industry since it's actually natural gas that's killing coal. You know, I don't not think really anybody can. And he's pro natural gas fracking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, he's and you know, with with the oil and gas bent of the administration, it, it's it's hard to see, you know, how he actually. I mean, you know, the federal government could just you know do anything it wants, I guess, to keep coal plants alive, but. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do, but I don't think just because the solar industry employs more people and has created more jobs over the last four years that that's protection against you know what the Trump administration might do. Trump, in his move to try to help the coal industry, does have a complicit Congress. So one of the things that they can do is under what's called the Congressional Review Act that Newt Gingrich passed in 1996. It's only ever been used once um, back during the Clinton days. Um, it it can potentially be used 50 times by this Congress. They have to do it soon because it's only regulation that uh, was passed 
after June 2016. So there's a there's a short time window, but there are 50 rules. And yesterday they removed the stream protection rule, which protects um, people in communities from toxic waste and sludge dumped into streams from the coal industry. It um, pulled back the methane rule, which um, protects people from one of the most harmful greenhouse gas as out there, and also the resource extraction rule, which basically holds the oil, gas, and mining industries um, accountable for disclosing payments to foreign governments, which our new Secretary of State had lobbied against that rule when he was at Exxon. All of those are going to be rolled back. The issue is they can't ever be brought back in substantially the same form as they were before. Um, we have not tested that yet, so we don't know what exactly that means. Uh, you could probably get creative, but for now, they're their roll back, and we could see CAFE standards for trucks and many others go too. Let's talk about what's happening within individual agencies now, and I think the most relevant would be DOE. So I am talking to a lot of folks within DOE, uh, former, former political appointees, longtime staffers, people who are working directly with the transition team, and I'm actually getting a lot of conflicting information from folks. Um, folks high up at EERE, I've heard many people say, actually, the transition team, despite what you've read in the press, is doing a fairly good job asking good questions. They really want to know about how things like Sunshot, for example, work. Um, and, and then I'm also hearing from other longtime staffers that it's a transition in disarray, uh, that they're clearly kind of aim, aiming, their, their questions are aimed to figure out what they can, what they can gut. Uh, the Hill last week reported that um, the Heritage Foundation had been uh, co-crafting a, uh, a, a proposed budget for the White House that would gut the DOE and gut EERE. So um, I honestly can't sit here and say I know exactly what's going to happen. Nobody can, but I am, in my reporting, getting a lot of conflicting information from folks within DOE. Yeah, so a little context on that heritage report. That was leaked by two transition staffers that put it out right before their last day of the transition team. So that is their wish list. That's not necessarily what they're going to do. So I would just take that with a big grain of salt. That stoked a lot of fear. Sea salt. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in DOE, though, I've seen that Pat Hoffman, who was the assistant secretary for the Office of um, Electricity, that did, does all the grid cybersecurity issues. She was a career staffer that was moved up through the ranks. She was not a political, and they've kept her in the mix, which I think is really good because she knows every program at DOE. She can tell them a lot about what's going on there. So I think that's heartening. Um, I've met with the transition team at Department of Interior, and those folks were people that also knew a lot about the Department of Interior. So I'm hopeful that the transition team is keeping enough people in the agency who knows where the bodies are buried and knows what the programs do and who knows how to think about the programs other than through carbon reductions. Because you can use a lot of other metrics, which they've also captured, to try to figure out which programs to keep. Jigger or a David, um, what kind of... Uh, clues are you picking up from people you're talking to or from the press? Is there anything that particularly worries you or leaves you saying, hmm, not, not a big deal quite yet? About the Department about of About DOE specifically, I and mean, we can go into other agencies. Well, I think the only thing I can add uh, to this is, you know, I have some working knowledge of, of Governor Perry because former company was the first or second largest power company in Texas and dealt with him several times. And what I would say is that 
you know, you expect someone who's governor of Texas for over 10 years to be sort of an energy expert, and he's not. Uh, and, um, and, and I would say that um, I just don't expect much out of the Department of Energy one way or another. I, I would think what, what Governor Perry is, is gifted at is being a retail politician with particular appeal to people from Texas. I mean, he's, he's out of central casting for that role. So my guess is the way he's looking at it, and he, you know, he loves the limelight like a lot of elected politicians do. But, I mean, in, in my perfect America, almost every government department with 8,000 employees would be run by an ex-CEO. Now, I can see why other people, but that would be my personal bias. It would not, they would not be run by formerly elected politicians. And I would guess that Governor Perry wants to create as few waves as possible. Uh, as head of the Department of Energy. And I would also guess, not that he's telling me this, is he's watching what happens with Cornyn or if Cruz gets elevated to the Supreme Court, and then he'll run for, he'll try and take one of Texas's two Senate seats. Because that's what he really loves, is being an elected politician. And, and so, you know, the details of how a, a, a department with 28,000 employees or whatever it has, and 80 billion, or no, it's 28 billion budget and yeah, 80,000 employees. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I think he just, he just wants to be secretary of energy to get himself back in the public dialogue. And so I think I would be looking for a department of energy that makes no waves. Rick Perry is a guy who's kind of easy to make fun of because of some of his statements on the campaign trail, particularly for this role, because in 2012 he famously talked about agencies that he was going to get rid of and DOE was the one that he forgot. Um, but you got to give the guy some credit. During his testimony, in his opening testimony, he said, I met with officials at the Department of Energy. I learned what the DOE does. I can't believe he's learning what the DOE does. He found, but he then found he said, out where the waste was buried. I regret, yeah. He found out that, that, that they deal a lot with nuclear waste and weapons. And he walked back his statements publicly in a very clear way. Um, now, I think that given the circumstances, that is actually a fairly bold thing for him to do. And, I mean... Disagree with me if you. If no, you... it's not. It's not the disagreeing part. Like I've obviously had a love, mostly hate relationship with DOE these last eight years, and I, I really am very happy to see a politician in that position. I really hated having physicists in that position because they were people who didn't care about U.S. manufacturing, and they didn't really care about the retail politics that frankly, is the reason why Hillary Clinton lost. And so I think when you think about Rick Perry, he is somebody who is very susceptible to our good news. If we go to him and say, here are the 17 new manufacturing plants we're building in the United States for solar. This one's doing trackers. This one's doing inverters. This one's doing whatever. He is the first guy that's going to get on a plane to cut a ribbon right in front of that, yeah. that plant and try to help broker a deal with the county and the local like officials to figure that out, which Stephen Chu and Ernie Muniz had no interest in doing. And so I, I think this is going to be really good for us, actually, because he really does want what David's talking about. He wants a limelight. He wants to sit up there. He wants to cut a ribbon. And he wants to get retail politics to work in the back room of a steakhouse to get these, these deals done. Yeah, he and Chuck Schumer are going to be fighting for camera time. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So uh, I, I, I think it's going to be great. I, you know, I do think that um, the biggest challenge, I think, within DOE is that they have to figure out at a staff level what they want, right? Because DOE itself has been conflicted for a long time. I like Pat Hoffman a lot, but she, for instance, for five years was anti-distributed generation, 
right? And so, so there was a big fight between EERE and, and her office for a long time around, you know, new standards. And so I hope DOE actually gets out of its own way and figures out what it wants to do. Sunshot was a very specific program that I, you know, had a lot to do with to get DOE to focus on deployment. And, you know, I, they never replicated Sunshot across combined heat and power, you know, zero build, zero energy buildings, all the other sectors that they research. DOE's got to figure out what it wants to do. The staff level has to figure out what they want to do and stop the infighting. Yeah, it'd be great if they could break down the silos. I'm sure you have a lot more faith it than it, in it than I do. I've been seeing a lot of different administrations, and it is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I guess this gets to a bigger question about what, roles, ro- what role DOE should take. In 2008, they were arguably still kind of an R&D-type organization that was supporting up-and-coming conventional renewables. Well, since 2008, we've seen a a two-thirds decrease in the cost of utility-scale solar, 73% 73 decrease in the modeled cost of batteries. You could go on and on, 90% decrease in LEDs. So now, what does the DOE support? And um, one would argue that Rick Perry shouldn't be going to all these ribbon cuttings and supporting conventional renewables. He should be looking at basic R&D and thinking about new form factors for solar, uh, next generation manufacturing. So I think there's an argument to be made, Jigger, that maybe Rick Perry shouldn't be focused on that and we now need to look to the next generation of technologies because over the last eight years, conventional renewables can now stand on their own. And that was not necessarily the case in 2007, 2008. We can have look. We can have this argument, but I think, I think it's safe to say, as someone who's worked in the solar industry for a very long time, that the vast majority of the cost reduction from solar occurred after we freed up, you know, the shortage of silicon in 2008, and most of those technologies were baked in by the University of New South Wales and many other research institutions around the world in the 90s. Right? It just took 10 years to get a lot of that technology into manufacturing ready status, right? And so the, the R&D that DOE did under RPE will bear fruit 10 years from now, which I think is wonderful, right? And I think it's good that we invested in new R&D, but to suggest that anything that this DOE did was resulted in battery storage costs coming down, et cetera, is ridiculous. I mean, lithium-ion cost reductions started in the Japanese program where they invested heavily between 2000 and 2004 with Panasonic and then the Koreans with Samsung, et cetera, right? So, so I just think that that's how long it takes to do energy R&D. It's not something where it comes out of Don Sadoway's lab at MIT, and then the next day, suddenly you've got, you know, $100 a kilowatt hour batteries. Yeah, also, the secretary serves at the pleasure of the president. And my sense is that this president is going to be a lot more hands-on than President Obama was of his Nobel Peace Prize winner. I think this president is going to have a lot to say about what happens over there. And so I think you know, there could be some great good news stories. But if there's some infrastructure stories and the, the four criteria for infrastructure that Trump has said that I think that Perry could continue to develop would be public safety or national security, um, having thir- shovel ready, so 30% of the design or engineering complete, creating direct jobs, and increasing U.S. manufacturing. And I think that if he can show that, if you know, if we can show that our projects are doing that, then and feed into what the president wants, I think that's going to be the winning strategy for him. Can Can I add something about that too? Is I think that one of the consequences of the Trump phenomena is that other parts of the the working parts of the federal government are going to be diminished for the next few months because the, there's going to be this total fixation 
on what's happening in the White House. And it's clear, I think, after two weeks that that's, you know, there's, that's not going to be settled very quickly when you look at the pace of leaks and, you know, the stories about the inner circle. And I think when President Trump finds out, you know, just how much, you know, knifing in the back goes on in government, it's not going to make him a more expansive person, a more delegator of a person. It's going to make him even less so. And so what happens at energy or EPA, I, I think it's all going to be about what happens at the White House. And I think people at the EPA and uh, energy are just going to be sitting there waiting for some instruction, waiting for the fight over who, can, who controls the White House. Is it Steve Bannon, is, does, as it appears now, or is it one of the others? And so I think there's more or less paralysis. And so what I think I want to make sure that we focus on as we focus on Washington is actually the strength and the possibility of harnessing the strength of the counter-Trump movement. I mean, Hillary Clinton may have only won 20% of the counties in the United States, but she won 65% of the GDP of, of, the, of the United States. And, and what are the states and municipalities going to do? I mean, you know, isn't everyone proud of Jerry Brown now? And, you know, in terms of him standing up and saying, you know, California will launch its own damn weather satellites, you know, if the federal government stops doing this research. And so... Yep. So the ability to make clean energy part of the counter-Trump movement, I think it's very interesting whether it's at the household, you know, where does the multi-million woman march? How do they manifest themselves? The states and municipalities. But I think what's really interesting, and again, I'd love to hear uh, when Jim Rogers comes up, what he thinks about this, is how do high-profile corporations play this? I mean, we've seen the CEO of Uber already have to step down you know, based on the immigration rule. How do you play this, you know, if you have your employees and, and uh, your customers are re revolting, but you're trying to have a seat at the table uh, as, you know, with the first, because there's no doubt that in CEO land, CEOs, even progressive CEOs, were offended by the Obama administration's complete shunning of anyone who, you know, had ever been a CEO, you know, so... Uh, so initially, when Trump comes in and says, hey, I'm going to listen to you, everyone, of course, flocks to the table. But now can you afford to flock to the table because of the people that are so alienated? So there's so many dynamics going on here right now that I actually think what happens in the Department of Energy is a pretty low uh, Priorities. Yeah, and I think we definitely need to focus on Congress more because Congress certainly they're the ones that are going to be held accountable in two years for what happens, and they're the ones who can actually. Pass well, look, and now you have John McCain conducting his own foreign policy for the United States by calling uh, the the Australian ambassador and say, "Look, the alliance is strong." You're like, yeah. since and we're cool, yeah. we're cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the congressional strategy is really important because you know much of our audience is made up of folks who are in the clean tech industry, and we have a very large piece of our audience in the solar industry specifically. So we talk a lot about local solar politics uh. on this show, and a lot of folks in the Trump era are saying the left, or at least just the anti-Trump movement, wherever they are on the political spectrum, needs to do the same thing that the Tea Party did, and that is go to town halls, record videos, put these members of Congress under pressure, and... 
the if you're going to make clean tech renewables the environmental movement a piece of that that needs to you know the people the 374,000 people in this country that are working in solar should be showing up to the town halls and talking to their members of congress yeah but we also have to talk to the right we have to talk to the red states and talk to the rural folks i'm not saying shutting them. them out yeah so i think this can't just be an environmental movement i think this also has to be how do you talk to conservative folks and say that this that clean energy is also very much based on conservative principles. I mean, I think it's really important, given the state legislators are so red and that the rural folks came out to vote. I think we need to learn how to talk to those well, people, and too. Well, and given that half of our employees in our sector voted for Trump. So, like, I, yeah, don't, and, I don't know that and, that... Yeah. I think, you know, just just keeing off of Trump... Uh, Trump. Keying off of David's point on... Um, <laughs> sorry. Wow, David. <laughs> on... Uh, <laughs> On CEOs, um, one one prediction I'll make on this is so I actually hurtful. think that <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to see a lot of energy CEOs make the wrong move. Um, I think the first one that I think is going to make the wrong move in a really big way is the CEO of First Energy. I think he he really believes that this has emboldened him in his quest to take us back to 1970s electricity regulation. And when you know John Kasich basically you know basically divorced him last week when he. Um, when he vetoed the renewable energy um, uh, RPS legislation, um, I think you'll see, there's going to be a big fight this year about whether to save the first energy nuclear plants <clears throat> this year. And I think first energy CEO is going to say only if you kill renewable energy. And um, and we'll see like how he gets caught in that vice because I don't think that Trump actually knows what the hell he's doing at you know the state level in terms of saving those nuclear plants but I do think he wants to save nuclear plants and I think that you know I think you know as you know the CEO of First Energy has been outspoken with Supreme Court cases on for a quarter 745 and lots of other things and so I, I, I do think the energy CEOs are gonna have to be very careful um, about whether their masters are the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or whether it's the state regulators and the state governors where they have a lot more um, regulation coming from I just want to say one last word about the politics of this. Um, you know, our audience, GTM's audience, is very diverse politically. Um, you know, we were pretty critical of Trump, but um, we have a lot of hardcore conservatives who, you know, hate traditional utilities and really want to learn more about solar and other DERs be- for a variety of reasons, but because they want to free themselves from the utility. I was speaking at a uh, a de- solar dealer conference last week, and I went and I was talking to a bunch of people that are all local installers. So many of them are hardcore Trump supporters. Yep. And, you know, they want to say, screw the man. Uh, they want to blow things up, and they see solar as their outlet in a way. And... I just think that we need to be careful when we talk about this uh, and assuming that when we say, oh, go talk to your legislators, that we're just talking about liberals who support solar. And also I think that means that the Trump administration needs to be careful about how it formulates energy policy because there is a very large and growing movement in favor of a lot of these technologies that are now cost effective. And if they are perceived to be doing battle with those technologies, it could blow back on them in some way. Yeah, we just Uh. have to hold them accountable. So if they kill jobs in an industry that's growing in their district, they need to hear about it. Um, Can we just finish up the political conversation by talking about Rex Tillerson? So, David, you were talking earlier about... um, what you think he is like as a leader. And uh, we have not had much of a discussion about Tillerson on our podcast. So 
you know, you said you'd had dinner with him. You'd followed him as a fellow CEO. Uh, you think he's a, a very intelligent guy. Just curious about your perception of him as a leader and what he would bring to the State Department. And then we can maybe talk about the, the climate change uh, implications of that as the, the U.S. sort of deals with the international negotiations and um, and international climate politics. Well, uh, particularly for the young people in the room that are aspiring to run large organizations, uh, you know, Rex Tillerson walking into the State Department yesterday was was textbook what you should do, as opposed to Donald Trump walking into the CIA on his first day, textbook what you should not do. I mean, Tillerson goes in; he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He's run the biggest, you know, oil company. And he comes in and says to the assembled uh, multitude at the State Department, "I don't know anything about this. I've been a member of the State Department for 25 minutes. You've been here on average 12 years. I'm here to learn from you." And he he was humble. He you know he was he used humor. He was self-effacing. Uh, and, you know, look, he's got the position, you know, he's a, personally, he's an extremely oppressive person. He doesn't need to sort of beat his chest to prove that, you know, he's got the testosterone flowing in. And I think it was a great start. And I, I wish that, you know, there were others in the government uh, that were like that. So he's a very competent guy. He's a very conservative guy. He's uh, what I like about him is he's a fact base guy. And I think one of the biggest problems with at least half of Washington is that the biggest, I think, victim of this whole election cycle is that truth doesn't matter anymore. But truth matters to Rex Tillerson. He will, he will act based on facts. And I think at this point, that's in this administration, that's about the best thing that we have going. Uh, you know, I mean, just to, just to second that, I mean, my wife used to run the budget office at State Department and um, I mean, she got a tremendous number of notes yesterday from her former colleagues at state um, with very positive reviews of Tillerson um, in their in their initial meetings. And so uh, and I've said in the last podcast, right, I, I actually am very happy to see an energy executive yeah. at state. I, I think that there are, you know, let's call it 25 countries where he can push LNG or, you know, fracking or other things. And I think the rest of the countries, he's going to be pushing our stuff because that's all he has to push, right? There's no, you know, oil or natural gas to develop in those countries, but they have wind and solar to develop in those countries. And the U.S. has um, OPEC and Export-Import Bank and the best manufacturers in the world and technologists in the world to provide the technology that those countries need. And he's going to use those as negotiating chips to get, you know, what he needs to get done from the State Department. I will say that I have seen a, a, a number of promising statements from Tillerson publicly, both in his testimony and in stories that I've read, about him recognizing that climate change is an important pillar of international negotiations. And there's a lot that can be said about Exxon talking about a carbon tax and embracing that climate change is a fact, but also still funding groups that supported climate denial. But I will say that it does... Um, bring me some hope that he has a very firm recognition that climate change is a very important part of his job because it is central to how countries are talking to each other now. Okay, well, can I push back slightly on sure, that? Sure, please. When Exxon, after all the decades, you know, came out, and I think I could begin the year, it was March of 2014 or maybe it was 2013, because I put this quote on the board at an NRG leadership meeting. Exxon has just come out and said, climate change is happening. It's caused by man. 
and we have to do something about it to that to that effect it was put out by exxon uh corporate not in the name of the ceo i mean to me the way i would operate is there were certain things that would be put out in the name of you know nrg as a corporation but if i felt strongly about it i would put you know you know said by david crane ceo of nrg and maybe he had a, they have a different approach there but I would have felt much more comfortable about, about if, if that was a personal statement, you know, of, of Rex Tillerson as the CEO of ExxonMobil, particularly after all the years of obfuscation and otherwise. But, you know, maybe I'm reading the tea leaves a little bit wrong, but that was a little bit of a, you know, disappointment. But like I said, he's a fact-based guy, and the facts, even since they made that statement, are so inexorable as to where we stand in terms of fighting the climate battle that uh, I do think he's on the right side, but does he have, I mean, he has it in his brain, but does he have it in his heart? And we're to the point where people need it both in their brain and they need to have the passion for it as well. well he's, a, he's a fellow Eagle Scout, so I think he has it in his heart. <laughs> <laughs> This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. Getting the government to meet the climate challenge is hard, but as we just heard, uh, very, very hard, given the state of American politics. And as a result, uh, many, including myself, are saying, hey, look, you know, the biggest companies in the world are investing in renewables, politics be damned, that's a great sign, right? Um, of course it is, but as David Crane knows, it's not an easy undertaking in the private sector either. Uh, a lot of companies give lip service to climate action, but as CEO of the independent power producer NRG, Crane tried to restructure the company completely around his climate thesis. So why didn't shareholders bite? And what does his experience say about the enormity of the transition? I want to first turn to the 2014 letter that you penned to shareholders, which was, which was quite dramatic. Um, you, you talked about Google, Apple, Amazon, um, leading this revolution in consumer-centric services the, and Facebook. Before that would inherit the and, earth. And, and that's <laughs> right, that's right. And, and, and then your re recent piece was the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Yeah, so. working for <laughs> So what kind of, why it was that not happening in the energy sector, in your opinion? And how did that guide the eventual investments that you made as a company? I want to start there with your 2014 thesis, which got a lot of attention. Well, I'm, so wh why did I? You want the business case or the moral case? Or? I want the 
But I want both. I want the business case first and then the moral case. Yeah, well, the moral case should be clear about, you know, what our responsibility is to be stewards of the environment, uh, you know, if you care about your children and your grandchildren. But uh, the business case, if you're in the – so you have to understand where the independent power sector sits within the electricity sector, which it's the high risk uh, – the electricity sector is considered a very low-risk sector because it's – rate base, you know, no matter how many mistakes you make, your state public service commission, if you've played golf with them, will will bail you out. The rate payers will, you know, pay for your mistakes. The independent power industry is a small segment of that that's highly risky. And so uh, if you're running a public company, you're always in competition for investor dollars. And so if you're running a company whose business model is inherently high risk, you have to offer growth, high growth, because that's the only thing that just uh, compensates for risk. If you look at, I mean, my just, I never went to the NRG board and said we should turn from brown to green because it's the right thing to do. I think that's a flaw in American corporate governance. You should be able to go to an American board of directors and say, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. But I would have been laughed out of my boardroom if I had said something that stupid. So I said, we have to go into renewables because it's the only innately high growth part of our industry, you know, because electricity demand growth in the United States is a fraction of GDP growth, which is itself small over the last uh, 10 years. But because of mandates and a variety of other things, renewable energy was going to actually grow high from, admittedly, from a small base. So that's how I justified it from a business perspective. Also, I said, look, we have to mitigate and, and diversify away from our inherent carbon risk because of some 50 American power generators, we were 49th in terms of our carbon intensity because of our 49th being we were the 49th most, no, we were the second most carbon intensive of all power generators in the United States. And then we compounded the problem by actually buying the first uh, company called Genon. So, uh, so, um, so part of it was mitigating risk, but part of it was was growth. And um, I think the, I you're, in your preamble when you talked about um, you know the, the investors not liking the move uh, from brown to green. I ended up getting fired because our stock price went from thirty-seven dollars to twelve dollars a share, and I was definitely annoying to our investors because I talked about being brown to green. But the stock went from $37 to $12 a share because Wall Street lost faith in coal-fired generation. Uh, you know, they, they realize, and the way that that gets translated into Wall Street speak is, I get questions like, we're concerned about the terminal value of your coal-fired power plants. And, and I'm like, well, you know, that's hard to, they are 40-some years old and under, and they're, they're not competitive economically against natural gas and they're environmentally challenged. But, you know, so, uh, so, so, I so I think it was a little bit more nuanced than that. I mean, I actually think that, that the basic problem that we face with corporate America and big energy companies is that, in public companies, is that there's no market for internal transformation. There's no investor that likes that story. The, the toughest question that I would get time and time again is, I'd go to Fidelity or someone and they'd say, okay, so you own coal-fired power plants like Dynegy and you think the future is home solar like Solar City. I can just go out as Fidelity and buy Dynegy and Solar City. Why should I make a bet on you being able to transform your company from one to the other? 
And I never had a good answer to that. You know, at, at the time at which you determined that there was this other future and you were making speeches about it, at that moment in time, you were making a bet or a decision that you believe that those coal plants would actually lose value, right, because of the transition. And so why wouldn't you have traded, right? Why wouldn't you have sold the coal plants at that moment in time, right, because you knew that they were going to lose value over the next three to five years, um, even if everyone else didn't, right, and then put that money into renewables. Like, I, I think that the, the, the challenge for me on the brown to green, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast, is that the inertia just holds folks back, right? I mean, like if you were a trader, if you were at like uh, D.E. Shaw or you were at, uh, you know, at uh, BlackRock, right? As soon as one of your analysts said, those coal assets are going to go to zero because of natural gas and wind and solar, you would have sold them to a greater fool that would have bought them. You would have taken the cash and then reinvested into something that had more value. So the answer to that question is, and, and uh, just to add to Jigger's point, one of the problems that we face is that by our own count, uh, depending on what point in time we were relative to Sun Edison, we consider ourselves the largest solar power company in the United States, but it was less than 10% of our overall portfolio. And so to Wall Street investors, it didn't matter. And we actually even at one point commissioned an external investor relations group in San Francisco say, hey, can you get like clean energy investors in our company? And they gave up the assignment after two weeks. Because they said, look, we found a lot of people that think that energy is doing the right thing, but they're not, they can't go to their boss and say, we're going to invest in a company that's the fourth largest polluter in the United States because they want to be, you know, because they're moving in this direction. So there's these structural elements. But to specifically answer Jigger's question, I think uh, in retrospect, I should have looked to sell some of our plants, but, but absolutely selling all the coal plants. First of all, there was a tough it would have been tough to find a buyer for that. But the coal plants were actually providing the money. Solar is a capital, as you know, is a capital intensive upfront thing. The profits, NRG threw off a billion dollars a year in free cash flow uh, that we were pumping into. That came from the coal-fired power plants. So that's what we were, uh, you know, that was, the, that was the balance is that. But doesn't that portend then that like, that that's going to happen with all brown to green, right? Whether you're Shell, where, you know, Sir Mark Moody Stewart talked about this or, or John Brown did before they all got replaced. I mean, that ultimately, like, that will always be the case. I mean, you know, you see NG, you know, the old GDF Suez doing this now where they sold all their plants to Dynergy and a few other folks. They've now, they're now sitting on $14 billion in cash and they're, they're... And their stock's in the gutter. Their stock's in the gutter. And then we'll <laughs> see whether they actually make this transition to storage and solar and whatever. But it it feels like, you know, like for me, at least what I've been saying in the podcast is that it feels like it's actually an impossible task to move companies from brown to green. Well, I mean, this is, yeah, the, and this is the problem. And I'm glad you brought it. I mean, a good friend of ours who is chairman of Shell, Chad Holiday, a founding member of yep. U.S. Climate Action Partnership, former head of uh, DuPont, great American climate advocate, and look at the, as you say, look at if if we had this problem at NRG, which at its peak was an 11 billion market cap company, the big oil companies are 30, 30 times larger. And say you're the head of a major oil company and you realize the stupidity of the oil um, model right now, which is we spend billions uh, confirming uh, uh, reserves that the world cannot afford us ultimately to burn. 
uh, but but I'm valued on what I make now plus whether I replenish my reserve. So I'm going to just keep doing it. If the if the head of Shell suddenly says, you know, the future of energy is the smart home, and I'm going to turn my company into a software company, if he ever said that in public, you know, the investors would be like, screw you, you know. <laughs> Your expertise is punching holes in the earth. Go back to punching holes in the earth until we tell you to stop punching holes in the earth, which we'll never do. We'll just sell your stock. So, so you're right. I think the brown to green of established companies, there's no proof that it can be done. But if you don't try and do it, you have a $6 trillion a year industry that's going to fight you. Because for to and and that I think is a huge challenge that we face. We if we're going to solve the climate change, we all have to be rowing in the same direction. Someone who's making six trillion dollars a year in revenue, which is the size of the global energy industry, if they're fighting you every step of the way, I mean, look at how successful Exxon was for 20 years. Uh, it would be better if they were on our side rather than fighting a rear guard action. Yeah, but those guys uh, a couple of weeks ago at the World Economic Forum were all talking about a cost on carbon and that making the difference in how they dealt with their portfolio. I mean, it's well, not going to yeah. happen here anytime soon. Well, I mean, but, you know, the uh, anti-coal movement was funded by Audrey McClendon uh, as a natural gas. I mean, you know, a cost on car, you know, it, it depends on who you're trying to displace. One of the things that... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we, we've lived in a world of energy surplus for the last eight or nine years, which was not what it was like for the 30 years that most of us came up in the industry. And so fighting for market share against other forms of energy, um, you know, I own, I, you know, I got involved in electric vehicles, not because I care about electric vehicles. Uh, you know, I own four electric vehicles, but, but because I wanted a, I wanted a, I wanted to take market share away from oil for electricity because, you know, we needed something new in the electricity space, you know, because we hadn't had anything really good come along since the air conditioner. You know, so. <laughs> so I just have one last question to wrap this segment up, David, and that is, have you changed your thesis on the consumer-centric approach? Is it going to come from uh, a power provider like NRG dipping deeper into the retail space? Will it come from a, a, an analysis, a software uh, analytics firm that's already working to do disaggregation in homes? Is it going to come from an O-Power or a solar company, you know, with developing a relationship with the customer and layering services on top of it? Um, who is going to be that company serving the customer and becoming the Facebook, Apple, Google, um, or Amazon? Yeah, so I continue to maintain the same thesis in a world of, I mean, if you think of the energy space, it starts as an absolute commodity, ends as a service. And the industry, because it was developed during a period of commodity scarcity, focused on the supply side. You cannot find a senior executive at like an oil and gas company that, that rose to the top because they knew how to stimulate demand for their product. They never worried about it. They're called E&P companies for a reason, you know, because they just assume whatever they produce, people will use. But the world has changed now, so it's all around the customer. And, and as you say, the person who's going to dominate the customer hasn't really emerged yet, and that's the most exciting thing. If you ask me to bet, who is going to be the Apple, Amazon, Facebook, or Google of the clean energy future? It's actually one of those four. And if I were betting today, I would bet on Amazon. I think that 
from what, and I'm no consumer product expert, but what I hear from Alexa is that uh, <laughs> uh, that that uh, that Alexa could become it could win the mind share and, and could be one of its apps could be the home energy brain and so and Amazon's got mind mind share and cloud and so if I if you said bet on one company or some new company it certainly wouldn't be a incumbent energy company it would be Amazon I I bet on Verizon. I mean, I'd bet on some sort of Trojan horse technology because clearly the ones that are just focusing on energy have had the hardest time connecting with consumers. If you have an energy-only platform, that's probably the most difficult way to get into the home. All right, so let's go to the last segment, um, how to get a job. A lot of our listeners, many of whom are in university or graduate students, as well as a lot of people mid-career who are looking to get into renewables or clean tech or just the energy field generally, are interested in chatting with us and hearing more about what they can do to find a position. So for whatever reason, we've gotten a lot of new demand from people looking to revisit this topic. We've touched on it. Um, what should they be studying? How did, they get, how did we get into the field? What's the most promising field to pursue in energy? What skills are in highest demand? Um, so for our listeners, of course, we're speaking at Columbia University, and we have four unique perspectives up here. And this is the perfect opportunity to talk about careers and jobs. Um, first, just briefly talk about each of your career trajectories and was there an aha moment when you knew a particular decision was, would direct your career where you wanted it to go? Yeah, so um, mine was circuitous, but I was a creative writing major and have a master's in French. And when I went to find a job, the only thing I get was um, working for a law firm in D.C. for $6 an hour serving subpoenas. And the only thing that job did was make me hate attorneys. So, um, so that's why you moved to DC. I was desperate. I I moved to DC to get a job. So I went to a utility. I had worked for utility as a technical writer during my summers, and I went back to the utility. And I think a utility is a great place to start. So I ended up designing grids. I went to night school in electrical engineering. I had to take a test every six months so that they knew that I was my guy and calculations were correct. But um, basically, my theory is if you can write, you can do anything. Um, Like engineering is kind of like reading a cookbook, but I didn't say that. Um, (laughs) But but honestly, I think working at a utility gave me a really broad sense of what's out there. How does how do things work? So I would urge people to work or study something that you know learn how things work, and then you'll be able to get step back and work on public policy or other things. But knowing how something works is so important. And in my aha moment at the utility, besides being told that as a woman I wouldn't get past a certain point, that was in the 80s, um, was that I, I, found a, I found a memo on somebody in somebody else's in-basket from somebody from the Department of Energy, and I called that person and said, I think what you're doing is really neat and I want to work for you. And he's been my mentor, so I ended up going to the National Renewable Energy Lab and continuing to learn how things work and doing technology before going into public policy. When I flipped to public policy, I figured out, oh, I know how to write and communicate, and now I can take all this technology and figure out how to talk about it. So that was my path, and I've done policy ever since then. But really, um, the key thing is learning how things work and also be willing to take risks. Like, I was kind of willing to put all four of my kids and my family (laughs) in complete and utter financial danger by saying, yeah, I'll take that job. That seems like it would be really good. I trusted my gut, my instincts, and was kind of willing to take the risk. Well, I think engineering is a new liberal arts degree. So so everyone should become an engineer. No, I... um, (laughs) 
Um, I mean, as someone who's hired a lot of people over the last 10 years, um, what I'd say is that um, we have a tremendous amount of interest to join this industry. And it's um, heartening in one side, but it's disheartening to be in your shoes. When I, when I started um, uh, in my career, I graduated from college in 1996. Um, I had no competition, like nobody else wanted to work in this field. And so I I, you know, called up a hundred companies that were doing stuff and had a few job offers and it was fairly easy to get in. I mean, now we're getting over 500 resumes a month into our firm, um, unsolicited and, um, and, (laughs) and they're all extraordinary people like yourselves. And so, um, so what I would say is I think the first thing is you have to figure out who you are. Um, you like not who I want you to be. Right. And so, like you should be very good at writing if that's what you are passionate about or French if that's what you're passionate about or communications or engineering or technical work or financial modeling or whatever it is. Like like we want people who are genuinely passionate about what they do and actually genuinely want to be really good at it. Um, so if you, you know, read some sort of book and say, well, I'm going to get those skills because that's what that person had to get this job, like it's not going to work for you. So um, the way you differentiate yourself is by showing how passionate you are about the stuff that you are in. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that we're continuing to hire thousands and thousands of people every month. And so I do think that we are going to onboard a lot of these folks. But it's just the competition is fierce because there's a lot of people in the oil, gas, and electricity industry who are trying to join our industry mid-career too, right? So there's just a lot of folks trying to get in. Um, in terms of my aha moment, um, I mean, people sort of view me as a disruptor, but I, I, the, I think the reason I'm good at what I do is because um, I worked at BP. And when I worked at BP, I spent a lot of time understanding why BP worked the way it did um, without judging. Um, and I do the same with, you know, NRG or Duke Energy with Jim and others. Like, I, like, you know, what is exactly the box that they're in? Like, why do investors force them to do the things that they do? Why do, you know, these things happen? It's one thing to sort of rage against the machine and go, like, to North Dakota and, like, you know, protest the Dakota pipeline and all that stuff is fine. You should do it if your heart brings you there. But to really be good at what I do... Um, you actually have to understand how everyone gets paid and why everyone acts the way they do because they really are acting rationally in their own rational self-interest. And and that aha moment was brought to me by uh, Chris Mottershead, who is the head of um, innovation at BP. And um, and so that served me really, really well in my career. I don't want to be too uh, redundant to what's been said, but what I would say uh – the younger generation, which for me at my age means, or let's just say like under 30, and so hopefully Columbia, that's a fair number of the people we're talking about here, um, is that uh, first, I think writings, I, I think the younger generation is, does itself an enormous disservice with its reliance on Twitter and things like that in that learning to write in longer form, which is important in business, you don't have that skill. And, and it's still an incredibly valued skill. So if you can write, if you can express yourself, and not in like some sort of really boring, long, like legal brief way, but with passion in a way that shows personality, it shows care. Like you talk about that 2014 letter, which, you know, I, I mean, the, the, I wrote that on an air. I do my writing on airplanes because, you know, I, I don't watch movies and there's a lot of time to just sit there and not do anything else. And, um, and I'd been handed just an, you know, the typical, you know, 
statement that a CEO is supposed to make. And I'm just like, I'm sick of doing this. I've been CEO of this company for nine years. I'm going to just write what I really feel. And I wrote it out in about 15 minutes. And, uh, and, but it expressed very strongly how I felt personally. And I, I think we have that, job openings at Green Tech Media. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know what you, you should comment on what you're seeing in the writing skills, but that's an area in which I think the younger generation is not as good as its predecessors. But you have these digital skills, which are incredibly valued. And I would say the quickest way to have an impact, you know, at a young age is that. Uh, I've got this theory of demographics, which at least in the energy industry, there aren't really 30-year-old CEOs. Most CEOs are at the earliest in their late 40s or early 50s. People having kids late, so that means a lot of people are CEO with kids that are still teenagers. You don't know this if you're not in your 50s, but you think you understand your younger generation through the prism of your own children. But what I found was that, and, and I got married late when I was 33, had a lot of kids, but they were still younger. And I, I thought, like, I understood teenagers because I had a lot of teenagers, but I didn't understand people in their 20s because I didn't have anyone in their 20s. I couldn't remember the last time I'd had a conversation with anyone you know, in their 20s. But that demographic, the millennial demographic, is now both the most populous and, and the greatest purchasing power, right? Now oldest millennial is what 33 years old because it's 1984 to 2004 people in their 50s crave understanding of of that generation and they know that the best way to do it is to get some people very close to them and so i see a lot of situations in big hierarchical corporations where ceos are getting a little cluster around them that sort of avoids the EVP, SVP, VP, people in their, you know, 40, 45, 50, and they're getting some phenoms, you know, some 25 to 28-year-old phenoms around them to, to help them understand that generation. And, and so the greatest power I think that most people can have at a younger age is to get that, you know, that, that, sh that shared power of getting, make yourself indispensable to someone who has power. <laughs> is what I would say is the best thing that you can do uh, when you're in your 20s. And then I would just say, you know, look for the job where you can have the most impact soonest. And and those and uh, and 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 then say and then and, and and create that because the whole former way it was done, job description posted online. You know, you get fit into a box. You don't need to do that. If if I wouldn't go into a place that says, okay, well, you know. You know, your your employee grade level four, and you're going to do this for the next five years. I mean, get in a situation where your natural skills can uh, manifest themselves over time, and and you have room to grow and, and and have impact beyond any sort of narrow job description. The first part of your answer um, was particularly relevant for me because I'm always kind of looking at this through a communications lens and I get a lot of people who are not interested in writing, who want to get into the field and just ask me about companies that are hiring or companies that are scaling up who may be interested in hiring. And, um, I can give pieces of advice on companies that I think are doing something interesting, but the actual piece of advice I usually give is if you want to make yourself indispensable, there are so many outlets now for you to be able to create your own voice. Um, it's so easy now for you to become a potential thought leader and exercise your ability to communicate and present yourself as someone who has worthy ideas. And so 
We've actually at GTM published stuff from people in graduate school and in universities who are really strong writers who are seeing things that we may not be reporting on, either op-ed pieces or reported pieces. And, you know, we're looking for people who are strong writers, not necessarily those who have worked in journalism for five or ten years. And um, we, I cannot tell you how important it is to become instant like uh, to, to become a thought leader in the communications world and to use all the tools at your disposal. There's nothing worse than getting a resume from someone who uh, gives me something from three years ago, right? A piece of a writing sample from three years ago from when they were in a class or something. I mean, I want to see something that is really up to date. And if you're truly passionate about the subject, it should be something that you're writing about now and reacting to and have something interesting to say. And it is easier than ever to be able to do that. So um, that's my general piece of advice that I give folks. Um, are there any questions that people ask you when they sit down over a cup of coffee that you think are particularly bad questions or off the mark or things that folks should avoid when asking for advice or for a job? Well, I mean, I, I think I get a lot of bad questions. Um, and not, on, not just on this podcast. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, and, I mean, at the risk of disagreeing a little bit with David and yourself, I, 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 I'm an old school guy. I mean, I work in the energy business and I get the fact that the energy business is an old school place. Um, and I'm tired of hearing all these people's voices. Right? <laughs> I mean, like they honestly don't know what they're talking about. And, it's, and it, it bothers me that, that I have to listen to the drivel that's coming out of their mouth, right? Because <laughs> like you listen to like the divestment movement, right? All these people are like, I'm the head of the divestment movement. My endowment couldn't actually like divest because some old crotchety guy voted against it. Now will you give me a job? No, because you clearly don't know how your endowment works. You clearly don't know how the power structure works. I mean, when you look at what I do for a living, I have 14 people to report to on every job. I have a county commissioner who like, doesn't give a crap about what I do that has to give me a permit. I've got FERC to deal with. I've got like, interconnection points. I've got you know, all these things to do. And if all you want to do is basically tell everybody about how freaking smart you are, but you don't actually want to learn how the world works, particularly in energy, which changes in, in decades, not in years or minutes or days, but changes in decades, then you clearly don't have the mindset to work for me, right? Or work with me, right? And so, so all of the questions or all of the commentary that you talk about, about how you read some article and how the world's going to change next week, I don't want to hear about any of it. So <laughs> send them to me, not Jigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You gotta. Here's one thing. You gotta be able to work hard. You gotta be able to work really, really hard and love what you do and love working really hard. I was in an incubator where the people behind me had literally just created an app. I mean, it was not an not an app. Apps are good. It was a hashtag. They created a hashtag, and they thought they were amazing. And I was like, you can't just say yo and be okay. Like, <laughs> let's. That's not how the world works. Like, you gotta actually work for it. So I would just say, be willing to work too, but love what you do. Yeah, I, I got counter jigger because I, I, the worst thing. I mean, first of all, I didn't do very many screening interviews. You know, uh, you know, there usually there were people to do that stuff. Right, but, but, but I'm uh, sure people kind of like find but, their and way. Maybe to when I when questions. I did do one as a favor or something, the person was too intimidated. But it, to me, the total turnoff was someone who comes in and they and they appear as an empty vessel. They just they want a job. They don't want to say anything that's going to alienate me. And I'm like looking for some, you know, point of view. 
And uh, and I say, you know, go in and be yourself because they're going to find out who you are sooner or later anyway. Yeah. And and uh, and just, you know, and, and again, I I think in a world where, you know, increasingly machines can do everything better than humans can do. The only thing that we can do better than machines is have passion. So I'm always looking for the I'm always looking for that fire within. Uh, when I'm talking to a, a young person, the light in their eye. I mean, it's not even things, I mean, that's to me is the most important thing. Express yourself. Don't just try not to make a mistake because uh, yeah, with, like with the person that's interviewing you. That's All right, so we're well over time here, and I just want to wrap up the show by giving our listeners a little nugget from our daily lives or stories that we've read or something interesting, something they don't know. Um, Catherine, you go first. Yeah, three quick state stories. Um, Maine eliminated their net metering program. Boo. New Hampshire is putting theirs just kind of waiting till they can get more data to take a decision on what they're going to do. But Maryland, bravo for Maryland, the state legislature overrode the veto of 25% RPS by 2020. So way to go. It's my friend Kumar Barve over in uh, the state legislature. He's He's been at it for like 14 years. It's extraordinary. Um, I, on my side, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of sort of negative comments to make around crowdfunding, um, mostly just because they haven't really been able to get there. Um, I've looked at some data points this week um, from uh, Open Energy, Wonder Capital, um, Greenbacker. Well, you posted something about this. Yeah, and Clean Capital. And I'm increasingly optimistic at the fact that they're actually raising money now at a clip of around you know, 10 to $15 million a month. And so it's starting to become real so that there's actually enough money there to really support our industry. So, you know, sort of, you know, after four or five or six years of hype, I think they're finally getting to real dollars coming in the door. So that's great. David? Well, I misunderstood completely the nugget I was supposed to have at the end. So, 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 so. Any nuggets good. Any so, nuggets good. so I'm winging my nugget here. But here's my here's 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 my McNugget trying desperately to being time topical and it being the Super Bowl this weekend, which is at NRG Stadium in Houston. I just want everyone to know, in a Trumpian moment, that I'm the actual one that pitched it to the NFL owners that Houston should be the. Uh, place because we put solar panels on seven NFL stadiums. There are solar panels outside the Houston stadium, which is a little bit of a rarity in Texas. But the nugget is this. When you watch your Super Bowl coverage on Sunday, even though if you watch all six hours, they'll cover everything, you know, what's, you know, you know, is, you know, what's the size of Tom Brady's toes or anything like that. How but, much do you deflate the footballs? Yeah, yeah but... But they won't show the solar panels outside because NRG is a sponsor of the Texans and seven other NRG team, uh, NFL teams, but they're not an NFL sponsor. So uh, when we put solar panels on the top of the Giants Stadium here in New York and the Giants, who had won the Super Bowl the year before, uh, were opening the NFL season the next year, the NFL came to us and said, if you want the Goodyear blimp to show the solar panels at the top of the stadium, It'll cost you $350,000 for one shot. Otherwise, we're going to have the blimp uh, telescope inside the ring. And uh, we're like, well, you just do your telescoping because that's, uh, that's not worth $350,000. So just to show you, you know, solar is there at NRG Stadium in Houston, but you won't see it. <laughs> so I have a question. Is anybody here 
um, impacted in any way by the Trump travel ban? Or does anyone know anyone in research or in university who is? Okay, so a few hands. So we actually not, I actually thought that we might have more hands than that. But I have been really interested in how tech leaders, um, particularly in Silicon Valley, but across the country, have reacted to the travel ban. And many of them have come out and you know, said that um, you know, talent from other countries is our greatest import. And these are the people who are helping us develop the next generation of technologies and uh, you know, the next pieces of software to make America a leader in this sector, and particularly in clean tech. And so at GTM, we've been asking around at a lot of companies um, if they're taking a particular stance on it or if they've had employees that are impacted by it. And that reporting is ongoing, and what we found so far is that actually not a lot of clean tech companies are really speaking up about this, like some of the very large uh, influential tech firms, because they don't really want to make waves. They're trying to fly under the radar, um, and uh, you know we're going to continue to do digging to see how the actual talent pool is impacted. Um, with that said, I know that Elon Musk is part of the President's Business Advisory Council, and he's come under significant pressure, and he had sort of a, a lukewarm response to the travel ban, and um, he is now saying today that he is going to bring his concerns to the President during his Business Council meeting, and his response, I thought, was quite interesting because it it is indicative of how the clean tech sector, I think, generally is is trying to approach the administration in that, you know, they want to take a stand, but they're trying to not make waves because they're in this really politically fragile time. So um, I think his response was illustrative um, of how a lot of firms in this sector are, are feeling. With that, we're going to wrap up the show. Thank you so much to everyone here at Columbia University. Thanks to our listeners back home. Um, you can listen to all our back episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, NPR One. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Send us your questions. We always take show ideas from folks. Our email address is podcast at greentechmedia.com. And we will catch you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>